This episode is brought to you by my Redressing Fashion Book Club. Have you ever imagined fashion being as diverse as human culture? Have you ever dreamed of a respectful, ethical, and socially just fashion industry? Have you ever envisioned sustainability being at the core of the entire fashion system? This is your host, Laura Beltran-Rubio. I'm a fashion curator, researcher, and educator. My mission is to translate scholarly insights into actionable strategies that we can all take to reshape how we create, wear, and think about fashion. So find a comfortable seat, brew some tea, and open your notebook as you join me in the quest for redressing fashion. Hello, hello, my dear fashion friends. Welcome back to Redressing Fashion. As I mentioned last time in my introductory episode for this podcast, I've been circling around the idea of redressing fashion for quite a while. And I promise to talk more about that first talk I gave with the title of Redressing Fashion from the Periphery back in 2020 at the Chicago Fashion Lyceum. That's exactly what I want to do today. The paper I presented in 2020 contained some initial research into three styles of dress that became the epitome of fashion in the late 18th century Northern Andes. But I don't think they existed elsewhere, or at least I haven't been able to find much evidence of their wearing outside the Viceroyalty of New Granada and perhaps Peru and the broader Andean region, but with some variations. Those ideas later evolved into a full chapter of my PhD dissertation and a published paper that came out a couple years ago. So what you'll hear in the next few minutes is a bit of a combination between my original paper and the final version I wrote for my dissertation without the specific case studies for these three garments. And hopefully it's all without the academic tone and in a friendlier, more podcasty way of speaking. But we'll see, you'll have to let me know about that. <laughs> Let's dive in. And let me begin by introducing you to the work of art that sparked my interest in the subject of fashion in colonial Spanish America back in 2016 during a research visit at the Hispanic Society in New York. It's a portrait painted in 1778 by black Puerto Rican artist Jose Campeche y Jordan, which depicts Doña Maria Catalina de Urrutia as the epitome of fashionability in late colonial Spanish America. Doña Maria Catalina was the daughter of a mayor of Havana and wife of a governor of Puerto Rico, so she was definitely within the highest ranks of the colonial Spanish American society. No wonder why she's dressed in the most luxurious fashions of her time. She wears a light blue gown with fine lace and ribbon trimmings, accessorized with a voluminous hat decorated with layers of ribbons, fabric, feathers, and flowers that sits over a poof hairstyle. Her chest is adorned with a bundle of pink roses and she holds in her right hand a closed fan, likely made with gold, which lies across her corseted waist. A parure, or jewelry set of earrings, necklace, and matching pairs of bracelets, pinky fingers, and watch chatelains complete her outfit. Doña Maria Catalina's attire typifies the French and English fashionable styles that proliferated around the world in the 18th century. Her dress is comparable to that worn by the peninsular Spanish Marchioness of San Andres in a 1791 portrait by Juan Esteve, now at the Museo Nacional de San Carlos in Madrid. It might even be comparable to a blue gown worn by Marie Antoinette, 
1783 portrait by Elizabeth Louise Vigée-Lebrun, now at Versailles. Yet, Doña Maria Catalina's style also departs significantly from European fashions of the time. This is evidenced in the rich decorations of her hat, the wealth of diamonds and fine metals that comprise her parure, and the lush layers of ruffles adorning her dress. I've come to the conclusion that Doña Maria Catalina's ostentatious style is precisely what separated colonial Spanish-American elites from their European counterparts. Most importantly, her style was inevitably fashioned by the complex cultural, social, and economic dynamics that shaped the colonial context in which she lived. As we see in Doña Maria Catalina's portrait and in her outfit, the development of fashions in colonial Spanish America necessarily borrowed from contemporaneous European styles, especially among the elites. But after studying them closely, I've noticed that they were also inevitably shaped by indigenous dress practices that preceded the European invasions and by incoming influences from Asia, Africa, and other global cultures. Faced with multiple cultural influences, colonial Spanish Americas consciously chose to adopt some styles, reject others, and in general modify references of style to their own ends. In this process, several local styles developed. They were shaped, most likely, by local weavers, tailors, and other textile artists who worked with an increasingly diverse supply of fabrics sourced from all corners of the world, including the Americas themselves. And dressed in their most fashionable and luxurious garments, colonial Spanish Americans then chose to perform their identities to each other and their European counterparts, both in real life and in painted images, such as Doña Maria Catalina's portrait. Evidence from historical sources, both visual and textual, suggests that fashion in colonial Spanish America was very much alive. Fashion was actively shaped by locals responding to the complexities of the societies in which they lived, rather than blindly following the dictates imposed from European fashion capitals. And Spanish American fashions were varied, specific, and unique, always depending on their context. Yet, many scholarly discourses talk about an overarching style or fashion for colonial Spanish America, if they mention the word fashion at all. So, I propose that we consider the practices of bodily adornment in colonial Spanish America within the realm of fashion, and from there, we can start to identify the local resonances of colonial dress practices and the social structures that shape them in their diverse and specific contexts through visual, textual, and material analysis. Methodologically, the analysis of colonial Spanish-American fashion can take inspiration from the model provided by Margaret Maynard in 19th century colonial Australia. In her book Fashion from Penury, Dress as Cultural Practice in Colonial Australia, Maynard identified the many ways in which fashion practices in Australia have departed from British fashion from the penal period onward. Maynard has attributed the distinctiveness of the dress practices of colonial Australians, despite their close links to the dominant culture, to a set of factors specific to the region that often departed from European logics and models. Perhaps needless to say, 
the specificities of the ongoing processes of European colonization and settlement in Australia differ from those in Latin America. But Maynard's approach still offers a fruitful model by which to consider fashion as a concept and practice, both past and present, in Latin America. I think that the most important lesson that we can learn from Maynard is to use a multi-methodological approach that reveals the local character of colonial fashions and allows for a theoretical departure from Eurocentric definitions of fashion. These Eurocentric definitions of fashion have resulted from what Jennifer Craig calls a European dictator model of fashion. They stem from the connection between la mode, the French word for fashion, and modernité, or modernity, as Valerie Steele has explained. A similar association exists between the words moda, fashion, and modernidad, modernity in Spanish language, which also share the same root. Under this lens, fashion is often thought of as an exclusively modern Western European phenomenon. It is conceived as a realm of the elites, a marker of civilization unique to capitalism, and based on an endless desire for change. As a result, it inevitably excludes many iterations of fashion outside of the Euro-North American canon from the writing of dress history. Both as a word and as a concept, fashion is often said to have emerged somewhere between the 18th and 19th centuries. Many scholars of the early modern period have been trying to push that date back, and many now agree that fashion was born sometime between the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, when marked differences between male and female dress were established in Western European societies. The use of the word fashion, or actually moda, was indeed present in the 18th century Spanish world. I have found evidence of its use in the 18th century to refer to a phenomenon similar to the idea of modern fashion conveyed by Eurocentric definitions. For example, the 1734 dictionary called Diccionario de Autoridades defines moda as the usage, mode, or custom newly introduced, especially with regards to dress and style. In this case, moda seems to denote a sort of trend. The Spanish traveling scientists Jorge Juan and Antonio de Ulloa also mentioned la moda del traje, or fashion in costume, when describing the difference between the dress practices of colonial Spanish Americans and their European counterparts. And in the archives in Quito, there are multiple references to garments de moda ordinaria, of ordinary fashion, or referring to la moda y calidad antedicha, or a fashion and quality already mentioned again denoting a sort of trend. But if the word fashion or moda wasn't used before the 18th century, does it necessarily mean that fashion doesn't exist as we know it today? What if I told you that the key to successful transformation in the fashion industry is education? That learning about global fashion history and reading, listening to and talking about diverse people are the most important strategies to actually make fashion more ethical, sustainable and socially just? The best part. You don't need to enroll in an expensive, multiple years long university program to educate yourself about fashion, though they certainly help. You can read on your own, talk about it, and engage with other people's ideas. It can be a friendly, candid conversation, like talking with friends. Or you can join a fashion book club. You wouldn't believe just how much I've learned by facilitating spontaneous conversations in my monthly book club, how many insights, lessons, and breakthroughs I've gotten from them. 
So, are you ready to enter friendly, candid conversations on how to make fashion more ethical, sustainable, and socially just? Head over to patreon.com slash and join at the fashion connoisseur level to access our private virtual gatherings to talk about driving positive change in fashion as we discuss some of my favorite fashion books. That's patreon.com slash L-A-U-R-A-B-E-L-R-U. See you there. But if the word fashion or moda wasn't used before the 18th century, does it necessarily mean that fashion doesn't exist as we know it today? Valerie Steele has recognized the existence of a fashion-oriented behavior that activated constant changes in dress styles in different places and times, ranging from Tang Dynasty China from 618 to 1907 CE and the Heian period Japan, 795 to 1185 CE, to virtually the entire globe in the present day. In a similar vein, Jennifer Craig has identified fashionable impulses in the constantly changing clothing codes and stylistic registers that occur in non-Western and non-modern societies too. But here you might note a common thread. The main attribute shared by fashion-oriented behaviors and fashionable impulses, and fashion itself, is constant change. So even when it moves past the European canon, the predominant definition of fashion centers on continuous change. Such a definition contrasts with the related but separate concepts of costume and dress, both considered somewhat primitive or traditional when compared to fashion. The term costume has been employed since at least the 19th century to indicate the appearance, that is to say, clothing, hairstyle, and other decorations which distinguished a particular class, nation, or historic period. Dress, on the other hand, has been defined as a coded sensory system of nonverbal communication that aids human interaction in space and time. Such a code uses a variety of sensory modifications and supplements that go beyond the purely visual qualities of fashion and self-fashioning to include multisensory experiences. Both terms are directly related to bodily adornment, just like fashion, but they have been used more often to connote relatively static dress practices. Truth is, however, that costume and dress, and culture more generally, are also always influenced by constant change. Interactions between different cultures are inevitable, and they cause transformations in aesthetics, technologies, and the expression of identities as people navigate between cultural stability and change. So, I wonder if dress and costume are really all that different from fashion. And I can't help but think about categorization and the colonialist dynamics and ways of thinking that are necessarily imposed with discrete categories, but that's definitely the subject of another episode. I'm also wondering whether the difference between these concepts has to do more with what is considered fashionable than with clear-cut definitions between the terms. Here I must mention a comment that Dr. Hilary Davidson left on an Instagram reel I published on this subject last week. It reads, While I do agree that all human societies have fashion systems in their dress, I don't think that all dress is therefore fashion. 
there's a distinction, but it's how that distinction has historically been applied that's colonialist, not the distinction itself. I'm still trying to gather my thoughts around the comment, mostly because in my mind it seems like a bit of a chicken and egg situation. What comes first? The definition or the distinction or its use? And where are the colonialist dynamics located? In the definition itself or in the use of the definition? But I also think I can glimpse where Hillary is trying to get at, I think. And I just don't want to dismiss the comment because I do think it's super important and it calls for more nuance and discussion and thought than we are often granted, especially on social media and podcasts. So maybe I should invite Hillary for a discussion of these concepts. I honestly think and very selfishly think that having someone to help me think through them out loud and organize my ideas out loud would be super, super helpful and hopefully also interesting to you listeners. But I digress. My point here is that I don't believe there is or should be a clear distinction between fashion, costume and dress. And as other scholars have argued before me, I also don't think that the point is to add some sort of suffix to the word fashion in order to include its lookalikes outside the Eurocentric model. That's exactly what happens with Valerie Steele's fashion-oriented behavior and Jennifer Craig's fashionable impulses. Instead, I think I'm more in favor of Toby and Slade and M. Angela Janssen's proposal to consider fashion as a verb as an alternative to normative conceptions of fashion as a noun. That is to say, we need to think about fashion as the act of fashioning the body instead of a specific, I quote, temporality of contemporaneity, a system of power, and a capitalist industry that was conceived in Europe and exported to the rest of the world through European imperialism and globalization. When we think about fashion as a verb, we must necessarily return to the nature and characteristics of local contexts and examine the ways in which local culture, anxieties, and social constructs shape varied, unique systems of fashion. This, in turn, can help us conceive more specific and diverse and inclusive definitions of fashion for the particular contexts in which it develops. And the only way to do so, I believe, is to approach fashion through case studies. Only through case studies can we reconstitute fashion as a phenomenon native to and expressive of the specific social networks and understandings of its different contexts around the globe. And only through case studies can we offer punctual definitions of fashion that are reflective of the diversity of local and historical lived experiences that conform the history of humankind. In colonial Spanish America, for example, we can begin to understand fashion as the result of the endurance of pre-invasion indigenous cultures, while also recognizing that it was not disentangled from the European fashion system. As in other early modern world cultures, fashion in this context was founded on the body and corporeality, particularly as it related to contemporary discourses on imperial control at a time when the Spanish Empire was inevitably on decline. Fashion functioned as a mediator between individuals and both the social and natural environment surrounding them. Fashion was a gendered performance, testified in particular by ostentatious portraits of women and the commentaries of contemporary travelers and moralists about women. 
and fashion reflected the anxieties caused by racial miscegenation and the growing desire for clear categorization. In the Andes specifically, the corporeal, relational, and performative qualities of fashion were inevitably rooted in pre-invasion Andean cosmologies and a social structure that valued hierarchies and reciprocity. Moreover, fashion was permeated by the textile primacy of the Andes, as it was imbued with the values placed on the labor intensity, patterns, and material qualities of textiles. I published some of my insights on how I got into these conclusions on the specific qualities of fashion in the late colonial northern Andes and the Viceroyalty of New Granada more specifically in a 2022 journal article, which I'm linking in the show notes in case you want to read it. And I might also return to it in a later episode, but I don't want to extend too much more today. Before ending though, I want to leave you with three little things that we can all do to translate some of the ideas I shared today into actionable steps towards redressing fashion, wherever we are in the fashion system. This is actually a strategy that I'm borrowing from one of my favorite podcasts, Equestrian Voices by Noelle Floyd, and the idea is to move past just talking about theory in this case and take action towards a more diverse, sustainable, ethical, and just better fashion system. So here are my three little things to actively redress fashion from the periphery starting today. First, we need to question the definitions we're given of fashion and the use of the word in different contexts. That is, think about what fashion means in the different stories that we're told about it and how referring or not to fashion in certain contexts might exclude some people and cultures from the global phenomenon that constitutes fashion and other practices of bodily adornment. Second, don't just assume that fashion is everything that has to do with dress and the act of getting dressed, but think about how fashion can diverge from other related concepts such as costume and dress. And in the process, maybe also consider whether we truly need such a strict separation and categorization or if we could eradicate categories as a whole. I know this is a very difficult question, perhaps even philosophical. And we might never get to a definitive answer. But I do think that there are many insights to gain about the dynamics of fashion from pondering possible answers to the whole issue of categorization and the differences between definitions of fashion and related terms. And thirdly, try to find stories about fashion that are as specific as possible and from them have an attempt at constructing a very small pointed and contained definition of fashion that works for that context but perhaps doesn't apply more generally to all fashion. Bonus if you can choose a case study that's not often talked about from the Euro North American fashion canon. How do you think this definition and expression of fashion relates to normative ones, how does it differ, and do you think it would count as fashion from the canonical perspective? Why or why not? With this, I hope to leave you with some good reflection questions and ideas to ponder how to redress fashion until we meet again. That's it for today. <music> 
Thank you. Thank you for tuning in. You know that I love a good conversation about fashion, so please don't hesitate to email me or message me on social media to continue discussing any of the ideas introduced in this episode. If you liked what you heard, please follow the podcast, leave a review, or share it with your favorite fashion friends. It does make a huge difference as we try collectively to build more spaces for thoughtful and nuanced conversations that can truly help us redress fashion.